Right now, Bet365 are offering a wide range of markets, including first, last, or anytime goal scorers. With over 45 million members, it's the world's favorite online betting company. And with Bet365's Bet Builder, you can combine match results, players to score, number of goals, and more to create your own personalized bet. And if you can't watch all the games live, with Bet365's Match Live feature, you can follow every moment through live graphics and text. Bet365 is the world's favorite online sport betting company. The app can be downloaded from Google Play and Apple's App Store. Over 18s only. Please gamble responsibly. Hello, hello. Probably good morning for many of you by the time you listen to this. This is the Going Up, Going Down podcast. It's brought to you by The Athletic. I'm Ali Maxwell. Alongside me is George Ellick. We are an EFL podcast, and that means one thing today. A recap of the championship playoff final, which took place on Tuesday night and ran long into the night. Now, in previous iterations of this most magnificent of fixtures, we've had the Clive Mendonca game. We've had the Dean Windass final, the Bobby Zamora final, dare I say it. And tonight, George, was the Joe Bryan final. Two goals from Fulham's left back in a 2-1 victory. All three goals after extra time against their rivals, Brentford, of course. Fulham are promoted to the Premier League, George. What did you make of what we saw this evening? I think it'll be forgotten in time that this is a match that finished nil-nil. We (laughs) saw so many things on Twitter and so much... Uh, online during the actual game talking about how this was another boring championship final but actually in the end we saw a lot of drama it just came in extra time and all credit to Fulham as well because nobody who watched that game with any preconceptions about Brentford and how strong they'd be in the season and how close they were to automatic promotion uh, anyone who saw Fulham this season and um, wasn't convinced by necessarily Scott Parker's uh, tactical nous or whether he was getting the best out of his side um, I think we can look at ourselves in both of those uh, categories mm. nobody watching the game tonight could begrudge Fulham their victory they were the better in a, a, a game between two pretty cagey sides two sides where it's quite clear that you know, the, the teams knew that whoever blinked first, whoever made the first mistake would likely be the ones to pay. And um, and it, with all these games, as we always see when there's high stakes, it needs a goal to, to open it up. And that happened. It just came in the first half of, of, of extra time with what will probably be one of the most memorable playoff final goals in the championship we're going to see for a while. Yeah, absolutely. Look, th- this is not going to be the longest podcast we've ever done, but we do want to uh, give credit to the game and we want to do this recap properly so uh, we'll, we'll run through some of the talking points from the game itself and as you've mentioned not too many in the in the opening 90 minutes of course we'll talk about some key players and we'll talk about what it means for both sides but uh, just to, to to build I guess on, on what you said there about preconceptions about these two teams this game would have made a lot of sense for someone And I dare say there were quite a few fans watching this game, football fans, but not necessarily championship fans, 
or fans of the two clubs who maybe glanced at the final league table before watching this match saw third against fourth in the division with two teams that finished on 81 points from 46 games and the caginess of this final and how even it was for the most part would have made a lot more sense uh, than to those of us who, who try and watch as much as we can try and analyze these two teams and try and work out even within uh, two teams with the same points tally what there might be between the two teams in the end george it was a championship playoff final that was cagey as they always are and we're going to talk about championship playoff finals as a concept in a second it felt like fulham pretty much from the off and this was a game that ebbed and flowed a little bit felt more uh, more comfortable i should say in a cagey game than this brentford side uh, there'd been a lot talked about how brentford's uh, bottle job, if you can call it that, at the end of the regular season would affect them psychologically heading into the playoffs. But they kind of put paid to that by coming back from a, a deficit to beat Swansea in the second leg. But just in terms of being comfortable in certain match situations, it did feel like Fulham, who've played a lot of their season in tight games, and Brentford, who at times have won by larger margins uh, and, and generally domina dominated the balance of play more than Fulham uh, over the course of the season, Maybe Fulham were just more comfortable in what was always going to be a seriously tight affair. Yeah, I think apart from the fact that Fulham still just about dominated possession, certainly in the first half, Brentford had more of the ball in the second. But you know, if you look at the game as a whole, especially in the ninety minutes, Fulham, you know, were more comfortable on the ball. I'd say there was a a, a real reversal basically across the board between the two sides, where we've often said this season that Fulham are a side who totally rely on individual quality in order for their for their brightest moments. Looking at Brentford in that first hour, you'd think that it was them. You'd think that their only tactic was to try and get the ball into feet mm. with Ben Rama, try and get the ball into 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 the silver in deeper areas and, and hope for them to create something. There didn't seem to be a tactical blueprint into how they were going to break Fulham down. That's the thing, isn't it? We the, the flip side of saying Fulham rely on individual quality is the suggestion that a team like Brentford and dare I say at Leeds, who of course are the champions of, the, of this division, are more of a team and, and have better processes as a team and, and are able to win games even without that individual quality. But Brentford didn't play like the slick passing team that we've seen for a lot of this no, season. absolutely not. There didn't seem to be. I mean, there were probably three or four moments in the game where they strung a few very quick passes together in the middle part of the pitch and they were only noticeable because they were the only times that they did it and you sit up and be like right here we go and then nothing happened but then if you take Fulham as the opposite Fulham aside who made the change to bring out Cyrus Christie and bring in Dennis Adoy at right back played with like a very flat back four for the most part until Joe Bryan kind of galloped forward in the in the, in the late mm. um, minutes of, of extra time to score his second goal. Played with a flat back four, but was still able to basically control the ball and therefore didn't really lose much in possession as a defensive unit. And therefore, whenever Brentford did break or did get men forward, there was always those four men back in order to, to prevent the threat. So you have to give credit to them for that. In our preview last week on this podcast, I said, and I'm not going to take credit for this before anyone gets <laughs> concerned, but I said that it felt like it could be a cagey game, tick, but it felt like a game that could be um, that could be decided by uh, a set piece. By And I was hinting at the fact that Fulham seemed to struggle so much with set pieces um, in the Cardiff games and Brentford have a set piece coach who and under the best team in the league. But it was, again, a role reversal. It was Fulham doing the research into how they could exploit a weakness in Brentford's 
um, the way they approach set yeah. pieces and exploiting it ingeniously in order to break the deadlock. So basically everything that I thought about this game at 7.30, if you flip it on its head, um, if the game had gone exactly that way, but it was Brentford um, winning and, uh, and the free kick being scored by somebody else, then it would have gone to script. <laughs> Excellent. We, we had an interesting tweet during the game because we can't get away from the fact that for a neutral, uh, and we're very invested, even as uh, neutrals, but as, as close followers of, of this division, even a, even a poor game without tons and tons of chances was always going to be interesting to us on a number of levels. I dare say for a lot of neutral fans tuning in, it, it didn't feel like it lived up to the billing. Uh, we had a tweet during the game from Chris who said to us, is the championship playoff final now too big a game to be entertaining? You could argue the last really entertaining encounter was Swansea versus Reading in 2011. Now, uh, when we put that to our followers more generally, I mean, there was a couple of mentions for the Norwich against Middlesbrough final of, I believe, 2015 uh, as being quite entertaining. Um, but generally, the agreement was there. And I suppose the justification that... I mean, we would say, but was also made very clear to us by the responses that we've got, is that a game like this, with the tension that it has, makes it virtually impossible for it to be an open game where, where either side are um, just cutting loose and creating a ton of chances. And it, and it works on both sides. It works defensively, where you are so focused on maintaining your structure and crucially not making a defensive mistake that could prevent that could prove the, the difference between a defeat uh, or a win, but also in an attacking sense, potentially on the flip side, and this is all kind of psychological, just the, the inability or the incapacity to think freely enough because of the pressures upon you uh, to, to make the move that you would otherwise make uh, without those pressures on you to, to perform the skill or, or, or to have the imagination to cut loose, as I keep saying, and, 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 and try and, and be that individual bit of quality for the most part of course the the first goal ended up being a magnificent piece of quality but did you have anything to add on on just championship playoff finals as a concept because we kind of predicted that even though it felt like two wonderful football playing teams it's never as easy as that but i think this is the time to probably off the back of that talk about the goal because i, I do I, I think that championship playoff finals are remembered for moments they're not remembered mm. for, for games like we talk about you know, we had Dean Windass on this podcast, um, you know, a couple of months ago on EFL Completed and, and his goal against Bristol City in the, in the championship playoff final is, you know, one of the iconic, in my opinion, Wembley moments since it reopened. And it's one of those goals that anybody who was watching it live will, will remember and anybody who was at the stadium will also attest to it being one of those moments. But it was a terrible game. It was a goal scored late, late in the first half. It mm. wasn't a, a, a free-flowing attack fest of football yeah. let's say and, and it'll be the same tonight where people will in time forget that not for 90 minutes it was appalling and they will remember that Joe Bryan stood over a free kick 40 yards from goal on the left hand channel put his arm in the air ready to swing in across and just played a googly to the whole <laughs> Brentford's backline and crucially David Raya and David Raya was arguably the best player on the night until that moment and then he was pretty good afterwards as well keeping Brentford in the game with a string of saves. Uh, and according to you know the post-match interview, which happened about five minutes ago, Joe Bryan said that it was something they'd noted, that David Raya stands very far off his line. Mm. Um, and therefore, Bryan, from that left-hand channel, just whipped the ball in at serious pace, um, curling inside the left-hand post with one bounce. It was a goal. You know, not only is it not a goal I've ever seen before, I've never really <laughs> seen anyone try it. 
Um, and therefore, all the criticism for David Raya, I'm not necessarily sure that's fair because 99 times out of 100, 999 times out of 1,000, <laughs> his position there isn't even questioned on that side. So um, a, a moment of, of absolute genius that was seemingly planned um, will be, you know, of course, Brian went on to get the second goal, which was a, a really slick plot passing move before Dalsgaard pulled one back just before the end. But this will be a playoff final that is remembered <laughs> for a, a moment of quality. And therefore, the fact that it was... It was another one to add to the list of, of cagey, pretty dull affairs. Won't won't be the thing that, um, that that goes down in the record books. If there's anything we love more than off the cuff genius, it's planned genius, <laughs> which is how you just described. I think our our approaches to podcasts. I think <laughs> one of us is certainly planned, and one of us is definitely off the cuff. I'm not. Gonna, I'll, I'll let the listeners work out who's who. Um, I want to talk about the positives here and I just want to cut, I, I want to cut loose and, and re- release the shackles of the playoff final <laughs> pod recap pressure, which is intense. It's the most lucrative podcast of the, of the f- of football, as they say. Um, but um, I, I want to release the shackles just to say that that's one of the best goals I've seen in an EFL game of this magnitude. Uh, Joe Bryan seemingly only scores big goals. Um, he, he scored... When Bristol City had a cup run a couple of years ago in the Carabao Cup, he scored a couple of absolute rockets. Um, He has a good record scoring in derby games for Bristol uh, City against Bristol Rovers, uh, also for Bristol City against Swindon. He scored against Bradford when Bristol City won promotion as well. Uh, And those goals against Palace and Manchester United as well in the Carabao uh, Cup quarterfinal. Basically doesn't score goals apart from that. Michael Cox said this, and I have to give him credit, the, the athletics tactics guru, Michael Cox, who doesn't normally watch EFL football, said that is possibly the most surprised by a goal I've ever been. And without having the, I guess... I can't the, believe he was watching. Without having the audio to prove it, I mean, if we'd had a, a recorder alongside us as we watched this game, I think that would pretty much reflect how we felt about it. I mean, at first I thought it had hit the side netting, because as you say, you just... you. Almost every goal you see, there's a precedent to it. There's something, you know, we've, we all watch so much football that you've kind of seen every goal before. And this, apart from a Fabio Aurelio free kick for Liverpool against Chelsea, from the other side of the pitch, so it doesn't apply. I haven't seen anything like this. And I still don't feel like we've seen the perfect angle yet. I think you're absolutely right about it being a great goal because it's one we never normally see. And the one thing I like about it the most is normally when you get these weird goals the question that normally follows them when you when you're kind of watching and you don't really realize it's a goal until you see the players tearing off the normally the question afterwards is did he mean it it's normally something like a Ronaldinho goal against against England it's one of those things where you're like well actually did he mean to do that Mm. and the answer when that question is asked is always kind of assumed unless you're a fan of that team probably not (laughs) whereas in this case there's absolutely no question that this was deliberate there's absolutely no way even watching the game as it was happening, we knew that that was Joe Bryan's plan and, and everything that's coming out after the game uh, has only confirmed that as well. There you go. Whip it in the near post because the keeper comes ridiculously far off his line, said Bryan after the game. And Scott Parker said as well, we spoke to Joe on the sidelines and, and basically gave him the nod to do that. The, the best part about that sort of goal is if he tries it and gets it horribly wrong, which I think he might have done in one of the semi-finals. All the blokes in the middle, especially the centre-backs who have trotted up for that set piece in the 105th minute, are absolutely ticking at him having wasted that opportunity. A a bit of talk about David Raya. Um, I'm sort of often loath to fully blame goalkeepers, especially for moments of magic like that. I prefer to appreciate the strike and and the imagination of it. As we've said... 
how many free kicks from a similar situation would David Raya have faced this season alone, let alone in his goalkeeping career uh, and not being caught out to that extent or, or even that having really been tried. What I would say is, is we've watched back quite a few times to try and work out, is his positioning really off? I'm not a goalkeeper expert, but I would say not hugely. I, I think for, for, for where the free kick is situated, you can't have a huge amount of complaints. What you notice though is, it's almost like he took too long to notice what had happened after connection. And, and there's a still that you can find of him with the ball basically halfway to the goal, still balanced on his left side before he'd even started to shift over. That's why you saw that sort of almost joke dive after the ball had almost gone, uh, had already gone past him and, and, and didn't look particularly good on Raya. But you have to say credit to Fulham and to Brian and to whoever in their side analyzes opposition goalkeepers and set pieces and looks for those marginal gains because these are the games where it, it makes a massive difference. There's not a huge amount in terms of 90 minutes to discuss, is there? No. And there's just one other bit of narrative from that goal as well. Go on. You know, Matthew Benham, the you know the the owner of Brentford, a pioneer of of underlying data and especially somebody who looks at XG quite a lot being undone by what is essentially probably a 0.01 XG chance that they have turned into a much higher probability chance. Uh, one of the few chances where all of that kind of underlying data stuff goes out the window. And I'm sure there'll be, the irony of that will not be lost on them. Um, but but what, mean, about, what about Brian's second goal? Because I goal. Mean, that just puts the icing on the cake. But the, but what is already an iconic winning goal at Wembley in a playoff final. And Brian just goes and doubles it up. But the interesting thing about that goal was that um, Cavalero had got in behind over the, the you know, the Brentford's, um, the ball over the top into the left-hand channel. And he really should be taking it to the corner, yeah. I think. And instead he checks back, gives it to Knockhart, who gives it to Mitrovic in like a really slick, Brentford-esque kind of passing move. You Fulham-esque. Um, well, no, but it's just, it's really good interchange. Yeah. It's, a, it's a brilliant overlap run from a player who has played left back for, you know, 115 minutes. Um, a composed first touch onto his right foot, his weaker foot, and then slotting it past David Raya. It was in a game that was that really lacked quality, it, it certainly shone through as being the one moment of, of sheer kind of open play, um, mm. pass and move. And, and it was the, you know, the, the front three at the start of the season for Fulham was Mitrovic, Knockhart, Cavalero. And as the season's worn on, they found their chances as a, as a three, um, pretty limited, mm. but they linked up brilliantly for the goal. And, uh, and yeah, all credit for Brian for, for popping up again. Such a good point about those three who undeniably were Fulham's front three for the majority of the season, but who lost their way through injury, through poor form, through suspension uh, in, in certain cases as well. And I suppose this is a good time to shout out those who, who kept things ticking over in their place. Cabano, of course, finding form where it just didn't exist for two years previously in the last month or so. Uh, Bobby Reed filling in for Mitrovic, not trying to be something that he wasn't, but actually adding more to the team that Mitro couldn't add, uh, even if he wasn't necessarily as much of a goal threat. And Kamara, whose mere presence and pace uh, really stretches defences and ties out defences and, and caused, you know, Pinnock and, and Henry, even if he did didn't, even if it didn't come to anything, certainly caused them to, to tire and allow maybe some of that space to open up once Fulham had gone ahead. But um, yeah, Joe Bryan post-match uh, saying, you know, it's, it's clearly absurd for a left-back to be bombing on and overlapping and getting into the opposition box at 1-0 up in a playoff final with 10 minutes to go or even, or even less than that. Uh, and he said in his post-match interview, 
I'm quite fit, you know. All I could do in lockdown was run. So uh, that, that, that's what it came down to, according to him. In fact, during lockdown and during the break in football, uh, Joe Bryan, who a lot of people listening to this will, will know of as a player and some will know of or, 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 or know bits of as a person, uh, a really interesting character for a football player, a, a real thinker. Uh, and he did an interview with Jack Pickbrook on the Athletic website, which... I think is is not necessarily the time to go through everything that it tackled, but it, it tackled topics, uh, certainly including mental health, that not a lot of football players um, uh, tackle or take on, certainly in the media. Uh, not a lot of players open up in the same way that, that Joe Bryan opened up. And for someone who has had a career path where he came through at Bristol City, was a, a, a just a hero at his boyhood club, who moved to Fulham as they went into the Premier League uh, in what was you know, a bit of a gut-wrenching move for him personally, but an amazing opportunity career-wise. And clearly, like everyone else in that squad, struggled in the Premier League with huge pressure on them uh, and, 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 and you know, such a difficult time to be part of a, a relegation team. Uh, and, at, and at different times this season as well, Joe Bryan's defence, uh, his defensive solidity has been questioned. Certainly people have, have pointed to Fulham's left flank being something of a weakness and therefore directly or indirectly that impacts on, on Joe Bryan when he reads those sorts of things. And his interview with Jack Pickbrook is just fascinating. It, it's, it's one of the best things that I've read on The Athletic in the last few months. And um, I certainly think off the back of tonight, more than ever, uh, it's worth learning a bit more about, about Joe Bryan and, and reading that piece on The Athletic site. Uh, you can do so if you are not a subscriber by heading to theathletic.co.uk forward slash EFL pod, you'll get a 30 day free trial. So not only can you read uh, all about Joe Bryan with Jack Pitbrook, uh, but everything else on site as well. Of course, there's so much good football writing on there, US sports as well and, and, and everything else. Thanks to our good pals at beer52.com, you have the opportunity to sip eight delicious, painstakingly sourced craft beers from around the world. All you need to do is go to www.beer52.com slash going and pay the postage of £4.95. And if that wasn't enough, as a listener of The Athletic Podcasts, you'll get two extra free beers. So that's 10 free beers. Beer 52 are beer pioneers. They travel the globe to find the best and most interesting beer from the very best craft breweries. They are now the world's most popular craft beer discovery club. Each month, Beer 52 deliver you a case with a different theme. So far, themes have included Germany, Korea, Belgium, South Africa, California, New Zealand, and many more. As an independent UK company, Beer 52 are also passionate about the UK craft beer scene. The beauty of Beer 52 is that you can leave any time. The power is in your hands. Your case will also include the award-winning craft beer magazine, Ferment, and a beery snack is chucked in too. Just go to beer52.com forward slash going to get your case free. And don't forget, right now, going up, going down listeners, get two extra free beers. Let's finish by talking about what this means for the two sides. Uh, we'll talk about Fulham first. I mean, we, we, can, we can easily gloss over the fact that Henrik Dalsgaard scored a, an injury time consolation goal to make it 2-1. If you told me there'd be three goals uh, in this match when we ticked into the 100th minute, I would have called you crazy. But um, from a Fulham perspective, they've bounced back at the first time of asking, which very few 
clubs have done uh, following relegation from the Premier League. They've had, despite finishing fourth, winning tons of football matches and, and racking up 81 points from 46 games, they have had a tough season and they have constantly been questioned, being held to very, very high standards, which many people felt they weren't reaching, I suppose. Um, and they find themselves in the Premier League. This must be an incredible night for Scott Parker, George. He said after the game, I feel emotional for the people who are not here, the fans. Uh, I'm so, so proud of the players. I've learned so much this season. The wounds of relegation needed to be addressed and heal. They're still there. I think we have to just give a word or more to Scott Parker for winning promotion in the face of, of so much questioning about him in his first full season as a manager. That, I think that's the important thing. You have to remember this is his first season. He, he's a rookie manager. He's won um, a promotion. He's, he's done what many others have tried to do recently in bouncing straight back up. Uh, it's, it's pretty clear to me that this Fulham team are by no means as good as the Fulham team that went up a couple of years ago. Um, and that's no slight to Parker. I don't think there'll be many people who are shaking their heads. No, but that's but that in any if anything that is possibly you know more impressive that Parker's managed to take them up. There are other people behind the scenes, not including Scott Parker, who surely would have learnt some lessons as to how to prepare for a Premier League campaign, and maybe the the shorter transfer window um, will help them not make the same mistakes again. But um, yeah, certainly. I mean, I. I've been critical of him and I and I don't think that he um, didn't, it's double negative, but I think he deserved the criticism at the time. But countless times this season, Scott Parker has proven people wrong. And and, and tonight he's done it yet again. And, you know, he, he says he wants to take a week before he thinks about it next season. He is going to have a very, very tough job to, to keep this side up, but, um, but he's definitely earned the right to do so. I'm so excited to see Josh Onimer playing in the Premier League. Um, we, even having watched the playoff semi-finals, still spent a lot of tonight just shaking our head at the sheer quality um, on the ball, off the ball, in duels, both defensive and offensive, the, the, the technical ability, the dribbling ability, the awareness to bring others into play. The impact that he had on this Fulham side in the last few weeks is greater than and possibly any other player in their side. Michael Hector, of course, came in in January and completely transformed their defence and, and, and helped them become one of the better defences in the league and very comfortable out of possession. But Onoma gave them the edge. And even if he wasn't involved in the actual winning goals, his performance in 90 minutes meant that, certainly for me, it felt like he was a bit of a lock for, for man of the match in 90 minutes. And look, as we've said on the pod before last week, this is a guy with 50 England youth international caps it might have taken him till he's 23 to fill out and suddenly become such an impressive um, prospect as, as a physical player as well as the technical quality that he had but he's certainly one player that I'm fascinated to see in the Premier League yeah and also his presence not only is he good on the ball and he's very very good on the ball both as a ball carrier and as a passer but you feel like his presence in midfield gives opposition midfield something else to think about and that has enabled Tom Kearney to be on the ball far more than in, and in areas mm. he'd want to be I thought he was really impressive again this evening just as him and Reed almost played as the two deeper water carriers um, and, and let Onoma play in front of them and, and be the one the more advanced player and I know there are, there are a lot of people out there who wish Kearney would play further forward and use his creative skills to better effect but I thought the balance this evening was absolutely perfect and um 
yeah, Josh Onomah has just in the space of, of eight weeks gone from a player who I've often watched and not been particularly impressed. I've often watched and not really even noticed to suddenly being a, a dominant force. Um, and, and it doesn't really look like it's going to be a flash in the pan. I'm sure he's a player who'll be key to the next season. Josh Maradona, mm. to coin the phrase that you used on the pod last week. And we'll finish this Championship playoff final recap. Uh, well, firstly, by wishing Fulham all the best in the Premier League. We're sad not to be covering you uh, next season, but it's going to be fascinating to see how uh, your club goes in the Premier League and how you uh, attempt uh, a survival this time round under slightly different circumstances to two years ago. Uh, but what about Brentford, George? Because we will be covering bees in the Championship next season as they move to a new home. Um, uh, I don't know if this is a bit of a grenade to chuck you an hour after a playoff final with, with a lot of fallout still to come, but what next for Brentford? They don't feel to me at the moment as ready for the departures as they usually do. Um, you have to assume that Watkins will go. You have to assume that Ben Rama will go. I think De Silva might also be on the radar for some, whether they'll let him go this summer, I'm not sure. You normally have players waiting in the wings and I'm sure that Emiliano Marcondes will certainly be one who next season will come much more to the fore. But other, otherwise, you've got Tariq Fosu and Shandon Baptiste, two players who I rated very highly at League One level, but it's a hell of an ask to ask them to come in now and be of the quality of the players that they're replacing. But as we know at Brentford, there will be three or four coming in the door fairly soon. And those players, and you know, I'm sure Mbomo will certainly be one who they'll look to, to lean on more. He was poor this evening, but he's been obviously a, releva- a revelation and still only just 20 years old. But still, they're like, you know, Valencia is another one who we just haven't really seen enough of mm. since he's come in to really show he could be playing weekend. Dervis Oglu so. came off the bench tonight. You'd yeah. expect him to be but more involved. Normally, these guys have more of an impact. You know, they have a season and then they step up at Brentford, whereas I feel like these guys haven't really had that first season yet. So. Mm. I'm not saying I think that they're going to necessarily drop away next campaign unless they struggle to bring in the players they want to. Um, but I, I think we've probably seen the end of certainly the, the B and the W of the of the BMW. I'm sure we'll give them a homage of sorts if they do get transferred away and up towards the Premier League as we would expect. I just think it's going to be really interesting to see how Brentford are treated almost by opposition teams and by the rest of the league. Um, they've been a club that have been so undeniably impressive with their improvement year on year, the way that they've done it clearly without parachute payments of any kind, but just by growing their revenue and growing the club through the strength of their player trading, their recruitment model and exactly how good their recruitment of players has been. And yet there comes a time in a team's life, and I dare say this has happened in the last few weeks, where you go from being a team that the neutrals think, or or certainly rivals in the division and rival fans say, oh, this is a great team and we respect them and we think they've done really well. And it just feels like some of the comments from Thomas Frank and and a couple of the players, a lot of it is just social media, hoo-ha and sort of headlines for headlines sake. But I've seen a growing sense of actually we don't like Brentford. They're a bit arrogant and maybe they're getting ideas above their station. And, and look, I, I think this is all part of the rich tapestry of the championship. I think that they have plenty to be proud of this year. I think that a lot of stuff said in the press 
is almost trying to use the press as as motivational tools for players. And I don't think that people within clubs and managers actually care as much uh, about the way headlines are written uh, as, as as maybe fans do and, and social media users. But I just think it's going to be really interesting. I, I'm sure that the bookmakers will have them among the favourites next season because of how good they were this year uh, and the underlying performance data that always shows them in a very, very good light. But I just wonder how they'll cope with the pressure of not being a team that had worked their way up and were sort of not crashing the party, but certainly enjoying the party for the first time. This uh, next season, that will all change and it will be very interesting to see how that goes for Brentford. Um, any last words, George? Uh, uh, congratulations, I think, probably to finish to, to Fulham. We barely knew you. Only one year <laughs> at this level. Uh, some ups, some downs. And a promotion to celebrate. Yeah, it's not the not the first time we've said goodbye to Fulham, but fingers <laughs> crossed they they stay away from the EFL for longer. Um, but yeah, it's been a pleasure. I can't believe we're sitting here on August the fourth, nearly August the fifth, um, and the EFL season is finally. I think 367 days after it started, it's finally over. Um, been a pleasure to cover it and looking forward to all starting again in just a few weeks. We have been so lucky to have been given the opportunity to, to have this podcast late on in the week, each week since, uh, well, since around January time, uh, given by The Athletic to, to, to do this going up, going down podcast. We really hope that you guys have enjoyed it. It's obviously slightly different themes generally to, to what we talk about at the start of the week. And we hope that Therefore, you've enjoyed a, a, a different style of pre presentation and a different way of talking about the EFL. Um, we're not finished. Uh, it's the end of the season, but there's plenty more to come from us. So please do make sure you're subscribed, not only to The Athletic, uh, where you can get a 30-day free trial if you head to theathletic.co.uk forward slash NTT20, but also to this podcast, the Going Up, Going Down pod. It's available for free on all podcast platforms and ad-free if you're a subscriber to The Athletic. We will be back again next week. We cannot wait. It's been a magnificent season of EFL action and there's really no time to rest because we're less than six weeks away from the beginning of the 2020-2021 season. Uh, go well and we'll talk again next week. Music.